The Lord be with you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, we give you thanks for your presence. We give you thanks that you are with us. Emmanuel. So God, today we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear what it is the Spirit is doing and saying in our midst. Help us to slow down today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. You faithful remnant that are the unfortunate ones and not having a lake house, apparently. Um, we're glad that you're here worshiping with us today on a holiday weekend. Uh, surprise, two weeks in a row for me to be up here, very unusual. Um, you know, holiday weekend, you got to bring in the big guns, as you do. But yes, for you faithful saints who were here last week, remember we talked about this idea of before and after. This idea that we feel like we have to have our lives put together and assembled in such a way before we can start participating in this life with Christ and how we don't need to be the people getting fit before we go to the gym, but that Jesus just calls us to join him on the journey wherever we are, that Christ comes to minister to the poor and to the sick, and so there's no point in us pretending to be well when in reality we need a healing. So whoever puts together these lectionary texts must kind of know what they're doing. Because last week we talked about who are the people that come and start to participate in following this person of Jesus. And then this week we're going to talk a little bit about what does it look like to be sent? When we commit to following Christ on his journey and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, what does that look like for us? So today... We're looking at what we've really gotten ourselves into. So here we have this story that Jesus gathers these 70 disciples. We don't know exactly who these 70 people are. We don't know exactly where they came from. But we know that there's a group of them. And that Jesus is sending them out. He gathers them for the purpose of sending them to these nearby towns and villages to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And he tells them, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Such interesting imagery. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And if you've spent much time at all in the church, you've probably heard this sermon before. You know, we only have so many choices to choose from. And so you've probably heard something along the lines of there's a lot of bad people out there. And they're out to get you. So it creates a little suspicion in us, right? That we have to keep a look over our shoulder. That we have to be careful who we run with. Because remember, there's bad people. They're out there to get you. And then there's this odd line of like, you know, so don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't chew. Don't. Yeah, how does this go? 
So we have don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang around with those who do. I want to tell you the internet is a liar. Um, I saw don't date girls who do. I saw don't hang around with those who do, which that's what we'll stick with today. But there's so many options here. But these are kind of the admonitions that were given, right? You are sheep among wolves, so don't do those bad things that the wolves are doing, or else you'll become a wolf, and you'll just devour other people. I just don't know that that's really what Jesus is saying to us. I think this is less about constantly looking over our shoulders for the bad guys. It's less about us sheep versus them wolves, the people who drink, smoke, chew, and do hang around those who do. I think it's more about living in a way that is grounded in humility and vulnerability. That this is what it is to be a sheep among wolves. And part of this way of life, a, a way of life that's rooted in humility and vulnerability, it really starts to take root in us when there's no room left for accusation. Rene Girard was a religious anthropologist, and he, he wrestles with this idea of accusation in his theories of what he refers to as scapegoating. And in Leviticus, we see scapegoating emerge as this sort of atonement ritual that the Israelites start to participate in, the people of God. And basically, they would take all the sins of the community, however that looks, and they would cast them onto a goat that's sent out into the wilderness. The priest would bring the goat, he would lay his hands on the head of this goat and transfer everything that was likely to poison the relations between members of the community and send it out into the wilderness. What a weird thing to do. To assume we can take our sins and our transgressions, these things that poison us as people of God and in our communities, and cast them onto a goat, and then just tell that goat to get out of here. It's so odd, right? But still here it is in the text. There's also something about casting our sins onto an animal that doesn't, it doesn't really carry the same weight or the same import as, say, a human being. But it doesn't take long before rituals like stoning start to take shape. The sort of barbaric genius behind stoning was that it provided a relative anonymity. That if we as a group can come together and find the person that's done the wrong thing, and we can all pick up our stones and we can all throw those stones, it's really hard to tell who threw the stone that really provided the death blow. This is part of the scandal of Jesus saying to the woman's accusers, you who's without sin, throw the first stone. Go ahead. Because it erases the anonymity. It draws out particularity, accountability, makes us responsible for these actions of the mob. It was no longer many acting on one. It became relational. It became attached to something. 
And so we see these cycles of accusation and scapegoating just continue throughout all of history until Jesus puts an end to all of our scapegoating. That he, in a way, is the ultimate scapegoat. And he erases all of the accusation. Remember, he says to the 70, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And who is Satan? He's the accuser. Part of what Jesus is claiming is an end to accusation, which means an end to scapegoating, to these cycles of violence. Because here's the thing about scapegoats is that you never expect them to show up again. You never expect them to return. When you send the goat out into the wilderness, if all of a sudden the next day your transgressions come trotting back into the tribe, something's wrong. But here's Jesus, who has bore all of our sin, who is slaughtered like a lamb. And then he returns. What do you do with that? Jesus doesn't stay dead. I think this is important because you either believe that Jesus puts an end to the scapegoat or you don't. And if you don't, then you just go on making accusations and believing that somebody has to pay for all that's happening in the world. You believe somebody is responsible for all of the wrong and somebody has to pay. So who can we accuse? When we're able to come to a place when we're, we aren't looking for scapegoats, we aren't looking for the people causing all the problems, we can start looking instead for the image of God in one another. Not just carrying suspicions about who did what, who caused what. So being a person who doesn't hold accusations, it means that we can carry something else. It means that our hands can be occupied with other work. It means we can carry humility and vulnerability, which is exactly what Christ offers us when he says that he sends us as sheep among wolves. We go knowing that God has sent us to live in the world in this way. And it's not because God has promised to protect us. It's not because God says that God will shield us from pain and from disappointment, but because God simply says that God will be with us. God will not forsake us, not abandon us. He'll never leave us, but that doesn't mean there aren't some wolves out there with some really sharp teeth. And still, Christ calls us to take the risks of loving deeply, of feeling deeply, living as people who are broken open and poured out for the world. This is, I think, one of the dangers of 24-7 news. It gets so easy to numb ourselves to the sincere tragedies of the world. Things like school shootings and drone attacks, inhumane treatment of men, women, and children. But as our friend Sarah Bessie would say, we need to let it break our heart each time, each man, each woman, 
each child, each country, each war, each loss. Because when your heart is broken, your heart is open. And we're meant to carry each other right to justice. See, I don't think it's really possible for us to love anyone or anything and not risk pain and disappointment. To love and not risk being wounded in some way. And perhaps it's not even possible to live in the way that Christ calls us and not experience heartbreak often. But still he calls us to take the risk. Judah Halevi was a Jewish physician and a poet, a philosopher. He lived in the 11th and 12th century. And he wrote this poem called, Tis a Fearful Thing. He wrote, Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. A fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be, to be. And oh, to lose. A thing for fools, this. And a holy thing, a holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me, your laugh once lifted me, your word was gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love. A holy thing, to love. What death has touched. Friends, we are the people who dare to love what death can touch. Because we know that death doesn't have the last word. To be a Christian is to regularly enter into and join with the heartbreak of God and to do so without fear. Father Richard Rohr says this, Jesus tells us to love and to pay the price for loving. The heart and the soul are the first to attach to things and to fall in love. Look at the image of the sacred heart of Jesus, his heart out in front of his chest. It may not be great art, but it is great theology. The heart is given and the price is paid. When we attach, when we fall in love, we risk pain and we will always suffer for it. The cross is not the price that Jesus had to pay to convince God to love us. It is simply where love will lead us. Jesus names the agenda. If we love, if we give ourselves to feel the pain of the world, it will crucify us. We may prefer to remain aloof and detached, but that's just not the Christian way. The Christian way is to risk the attachments of love and then keep growing in what it actually means to love. We can live without fear, not because life in Christ is without pain, but because we are people of death and resurrection. I love one of Frederick Buchner's most famous lines. He says, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We are sent into the world as sheep among wolves, but don't be afraid. You are bearing witness to a kingdom of peace in a violent world, but don't be afraid. 
Instead, drink the cup of life all the way down. Allow yourself to feel and feel deeply. I, I think it's important here to say this, that this doesn't mean we go looking for pain or suffering. We don't voluntarily subject ourselves to abuse and to suffering, to pain. We don't think that God orders and directs our pain in some way. But it does mean that we're not alone in our pain. It does mean that we shouldn't remain indifferent to pain or to love, or to faith. In the words of Elie Wiesel, he says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it is indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. I think as followers of Jesus, the thing that we have to avoid at all costs is indifference. Indifference tends to insulate us and it robs us from feeling the things that we're intended to feel. So what does this mean? How does this apply to us? What does this mean for us to live as sheep among wolves? What marks a life lived in love in this way? How do we carry this out? First, I think it's important to remember that Jesus sends these 70 disciples out in pairs. He sends them two at a time. To live in a way that takes risks to be sheep among wolves is to be people who are never sent out into the world alone. To remember that Christ never sends us by ourselves. This life with God, being sent into the world, it's infinitely scarier because that's just not how we're called to live alone. Instead, Christ sends us with those that we are known by and those who we know. When you're living as sheep among wolves, the strength and the protection that we have is the strength that we draw from one another and realizing that we're never alone. Listen, I think if you find yourself doing this more or less alone, I want I want to encourage you to fight to find ways to get integrated, to get plugged in, to find your people. Because we're not supposed to do this by ourselves. I think there are always going to be wonderful people who show up on Sunday, they pray, they read their Bibles. Again, they don't drink, smoke, or chew. But when we do it alone, I don't think we can say that this resembles anything of Christian community. Sanctuary is far from perfect, but we have to find ways to get involved. We have to find ways to get integrated into the life of the community, to meet people and to find out what kind of stories are sitting in the pews around us. Because Christ always sends us out in pairs. Life in Christ is always deeply personal, but it's never private. 
There are collective, communal, corporate dimensions of our faith that sit at the foundation of a Christian life. And they'll just go completely unrealized if we think we're doing this all by ourselves. These things are not accessories to tag on to being a Christian. It's how we're Christian at all. It requires us to risk to live as sheep among wolves. It requires risk to invest in deep and meaningful friendships and relationships. And I'm not suggesting that we have to be close to 70 people. You can't be close to 70 people. Even Jesus had the 12, and within the 12, he had three that were his inner circle, right? We can't be close to 70 people, but you can find a few. You can find a few people who know you, know what you carry. I told my wife the other day, we were hanging out with some friends, and as you do when you're married and you hang out with other married couples, throughout the night, you just start to like, kind of like gravitate to the men and the women, right? And we got home, and I looked at her, and I said, man, I love you so much. And she just kind of laughed and looked at me, and I said, man, I'm so glad we have our problems and not anybody else's problems. <laughs> And I think that's more or less true, right? This cliche idea that if we could take all of our problems and all of our issues and put them in a big pile here at the front and then go, all right, pick up the best ones, you'd probably just go running right back to the ones you already have. But the point is that we don't know what other people carry. Others may not know what you carry. And when we simply show up on a Sunday and we sing our songs and we put on a brave face... To reference last week, we start to look more like a country club than an AA meeting. Man, do we need each other. So that's the first thing. Find a few that you can live your life with. Be known by them. Second, Jesus' charge to these 70 is pretty tough. He tells them, don't bring a bag, don't bring a purse, leave your sandals, just go. And I don't think... For us, the application is very literal. Like every woman who walked in here with a purse today, or men, if you carry it in your man bag, um, like all of us are breaking the law at this point, right? I just don't think that that's what Jesus really has for us. But I do think that the spirit of what Jesus is telling them is so much more challenging than face value. There's something about this charge that speaks to our our desire, our need to prepare and often over-prepare for things. I'm sure a lot of you are traveling for the summer. Uh, those of you listening on the podcast because you're at the lake house, take note. And as you start to pack, the most ridiculous things happen. Where you open your bag and you're like, what do I need now? And you start packing items of clothing that don't even apply to the places that you're going, right? Like, well, just in case, want to be prepared. Um, you bring twice the amount of underwear that you ever actually need. Like, what do you think's going to happen? <laughs> Our overpacking is so silly. And it all stems from this desire to be prepared. 
Because it's a little gratifying, right? Like, when you pack the thing that you didn't think you needed, but, like, then you do, it's like, oh, so glad I brought that thing. It's so gratifying. And to a point, I think preparedness is important. Things like having a living will, things like having some life insurance. Like, these things are important. We ought to be prepared for things. But believing that we can be prepared for every single event and possible outcome, it just doesn't work. We're just not that in control of the world around us. It's like these tragic, really cliche stories about people who exercise and they eat right and they do all the right things to avoid getting cancer and they get struck by lightning or something. It's like, we're just not that in control of the world. And the thing that you didn't plan for is the thing that's probably going to happen anyway. Trouble is going to come. This is life. It's just the way life works. You're going to get hit with a thing that you weren't ready for. But I think so much unnecessary pain comes from our own need to feel prepared, to feel protected. So much more disappointment on the other side when we think we could have prevented something that was just inevitable. We do this practically. We joke about the overpacking thing, but I think we do this theologically too. That we can read all the books we want. We can listen to all the podcasts we want. But when it comes right down to carrying the light and love of Christ into a dark and broken world, you're just going to run into things that you weren't ready for. Yes, we should read. Yes, we should study our Bibles and God's word. Yes, we should listen to podcasts from people who are more intelligent than ourselves. But life is just full of situations the manual does not address. Parents, are you with me? Are you ready is one of the most bogus questions we can ask people who are pregnant. (laughs) No, you're not ready. And if you say yes to that question, you're either ignorant or a liar. (laughs) Raising human beings is like the least prepared, worthy thing you could ever do. Just try to pick out a name for a kid. At some point, being a disciple means that we just go because Jesus tells us to go, and we have been sent, and we learn to trust God with the outcomes. In another part of this text, Jesus simply tells the disciples to go and to proclaim God's peace because we are citizens of a peaceable kingdom in a violent world. We're called to bear witness to a kingdom Wherever we go, that the kingdom of God is near, even to the people who reject us. Sometimes, Jesus says, we go to places that don't give a rip about what we have to say. And Jesus just says to shake off the dust. Why is that important? The dust matters because if these people had welcomed us, if they'd been hospitable to us, cared for us like a neighbor instead of a stranger, they would have washed our feet. There wouldn't have been any dust left to shake off. But we brush it off. We proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Because we're not in charge of the outcomes. This is a really hard thing to hear, but we are not responsible for whether or not anyone else comes to faith. 
We're not responsible for the outcomes. We are responsible to proclaim the kingdom with our life and with our words, but how that's received is not up to us. It just isn't. How another person chooses to behave or not behave is not up to us. This is why the Christian life is not just about regulating morality, but it's about bearing witness. God will straighten everything else out. God will accomplish what God desires through you and never the other way around. We can't accomplish something that God wants through other people. For some of us, we could live with so much more freedom if we could just accept that and be all right with that. Remember, God doesn't put results in our hands. He puts seeds in our hands. And we plant them. And we steward them. But we can't be responsible for actually growing them. That's the work of the Spirit. This factor removes all the pressure. That if someone accepts Christ, praise God. If they refuse to listen, we shake off the dust. Because it's really God that they refuse to hear. I think this makes doing church so much easier when we're not responsible for all of the bottom lines. We're here to be faithful, to bear witness, and to leave the rest up to God. Finally, there's this interesting line where Jesus tells them to eat whatever is set before you. We don't really know sometimes how much our lack of simplicity actually wears on us. I think this is especially important for us during ordinary time when we have space to slow down a bit, to consider what we're spending our energies and our time on, to take some stock and inventory. And I think it's important for us to have these seasons where we take conscious steps to simplify some of the clutter in our lives. This isn't about being legalistic or moralistic, but I think providing some basic parameters and boundaries actually gives us more freedom to enjoy the life that we have in Christ. I think it would be so life-giving for us to just have a few hours a day when we don't have to pick up a phone at all. We're so inundated with screens and messages. There's so much fighting for our attention. We, are, we have endless amounts of choices in the way that we spend our energy and our time. And when we're constantly confronted with all of that choice and noise and media and screens, it just becomes paralyzing. So what if instead we just eat whatever is set before us to receive the moment of the day? So much of what I think God calls us to do in the world means that we have to declutter from where we are, that we just eat what's set before us. I think maybe part of what it means for us to be more effective for what God has for us could be found in just simplifying our lives a little bit. It's like, it's like living in Walmart. I mean, really, there's a, a story that this 
uh, author Kathleen Norris tells in her book, The Cloister Walk, where she's gone to this monastery and she meets this monk and he's lived in this monastery for several years at this point and every morning they eat the same cereal for breakfast. And then she takes him to Walmart and walks him to the cereal aisle and he loses his mind. Like, how do you choose a cereal at Walmart when you've only known one for so long? I think this is something of what it is to eat what's set before us. To realize the life that God has called us to live is much more simple than we ever make it out to be. We are surrounded by choice. And I think when we're surrounded by choice, we start living from a posture of taking and grasping rather than receiving what it is that God has for us. This is why when we come to the table here in a few moments, the people who are serving the body and the blood, they simply say to you, the body of Christ, and they set it in your hands. Because there's something about that posture of grasping and taking that's just not what God intended for us. A posture of reception, accepting what it is that God has to offer us eating what is set before us. This is the kind of posture that God calls us to take in the world. I think this is what it is to live a life that is grounded in contentment, gratefully receiving whatever it is that God has for us. So finally, remember, Christ never sends us out into the world alone. God hands us seeds, not results. And the invitation of the Spirit is to receive what is offered today. Amen.